are here. At 11FS headquarters in London we work for episode 33 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you France and Germany's crypto crackdown, Binance deny they were hacked, and a fantastic interview from the one and only Blythe Masters, the CEO of Digital Asset. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Okay, so Colin, well, he's on an Alp at the moment. He's not with us. Um, shout out to Colin on your Alp doing your thing. I hope you can see some field from where you are, Colin. Um, but joining us this week, we got Sarah Feenan. You are back. How are you, Sarah? I'm very well. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be back. You haven't seen any fields, have you? Uh, no, I live in London, so I've no, seen nothing green this week. Not even London fields. All right, before we start this show, this episode is brought to you by Corda. Uh, Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly and in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology providers. It's ready to build on today and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions. Go to Corda.net to learn more. And don't forget, CordaCon is happening in Tokyo on the 7th of March. So if you're in Asia or you can get to Tokyo for the 7th of March, don't miss out. Uh, you can check out events at r3.com. That's events at r3.com for more information or to register. Okay, on with the news. So first story this week, France and Germany aim to regulate crypto as part of the G20. And the story I picked up here in the Telegraph, where they are demanding, quote unquote, a Bitcoin crackdown. The senior economic chiefs, um, ministers of finance and central bankers have collectively called for this crackdown and similar cryptocurrencies. Sarah, what's the what's the uptake here? What's what's the upshot? So there's four main points to this report that they've released. They would like to build a common understanding on the nature of tokens, monitor the implications on market stability, find better protections for non-professional investors, and adopt a common approach on anti-money laundering. That's a pretty interesting mix of stuff, and I'd say all of those are actually pretty fair, right? I mean, um, common understanding on the nature of tokens. Do we think people understand what tokens are? Yeah, I completely agree. It all seems very sensible, actually. And of course, there's the ongoing debate about utility tokens versus securities, and which one's which, what makes up a security, and it ties in with, you know, act, the 40 Act and uh, the Howey Test and all of these other... Absolutely. I think that um, misunderstanding of tokens as well, it was um, Brian from Hyperledger, um, who, uh, Brian Bellendorf, who pointed out to me that, look, Tokens aren't exclusively in this uh, permissionless blockchain world. We're not just talking about Ethereum, Zcash, and Dash. Think about the fact that Apple Pay and Samsung Pay use tokens. Now, those aren't tokenizing a new type of crypto asset. They're tokenizing real-world money, um, and they're doing so in a different way. And he said, well, we will tokenize financial assets with what the market is calling distributed ledger. We like the technology, but not the currency. Actually, that stuff uses tokens too. So there's a lot of confusion out there, I think, amongst um, senior policymakers. And uh, I think it's good for them to, to recognize that. I think this monitoring implications on market stability as well. I think that the G20 called out, hey, look, we don't think this market's very big, but it might get big. And also what happens if central banks do issue these crypto tokens, which, which could start to be, again, causing confusion about, well, if a central bank issues it, is it still a token? Yeah, and I, I think that kind of ties into some of the comments that we've heard last week from these central bankers saying Bitcoin and, and it's like are not currencies and nor will they be seen as currencies in the near future. If you feel like reading his essay, the um, governor of the Central Bank of Luxembourg, Yves Mersch, did write a, a nice piece on that. And he he's talked about this kind of well-established framework of what is a currency, which is a unit of account, a medium of exchange and store of value. It's a little dismissive, but he does go through why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can't be seen as some of those yet. And to me, they all seem to tie into volatility and challenges around infrastructure that are being worked on. Which kind of comes back to that first point, right? We, we don't agree on what a token is. Mm -hmm. I really like the Chris Bernisky model of uh, crypto 
assets broadly as being the catch-all term. And within that, you could have a cryptocurrency, uh, a crypto commodity, and a crypto token. And those tokens can be a whole family of different things. And actually developing that taxonomy becomes kind of really, really important. Um, and this uh, this third point around offering protection to non-professional investors. I mean, there was a... Yeah, oh, there was a program on BBC Panorama, for those of you in the UK or those of you with access to um, BBC internationally, that talked about some of the scams that are out there where you know uh, unsophisticated investors are being brought in and, and encouraged to buy this stuff. It's, it's really quite horrendous, some of the stuff that's happening. It is. And some of the scams, are they're huge. And also, can I point out, some of them are a little obvious. Uh, so I think there's there's an element of common sense, but there is also there is a lot more protection around non-professional investors, and rightly so as well. But I do wonder whether that can be mapped one-to-one with the current environment that we're in. For example, non-professional investors, fine, but if we're looking at those non-professional investors that were early adopters and niche adopters of Bitcoin and Ethereum, they very much understand the technological makeup of these cryptocurrencies so much more so are they as likely to get scammed are they in fact a different class of investor i think that's really interesting of like the way you measure sophisticated investor is do they have enough money to absorb losses like do we care if rich people lose a lot of money no do we care if poor people do yes Uh, and actually do we care if somebody who's technologically savvy enough to understand this technology potentially invests and and understands what they're doing better i I do agree and and in fact i think uh, several initiatives have already suggested that new classification of, of potential investor. And again, I think understanding the types of token, the types of actor in the market, and then the types of functions of creating a token, issuing a token, that token being used on the secondary market, and a taxonomy around that is, is going to be hugely helpful. And then lastly, there's this piece around anti-money laundering, which links to your point about is it a currency? Because I can launder money, but I can't launder things that aren't money as easily, like laundering assets is is a little harder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it leads directly on from the points before about better protections for non-professional investors and and anyone, actually, Uh, because it it makes you wonder what kind of protections they will be. For example, if you you can't follow the money, then how are you able to protect anyone at all? Well, that follow the money piece is is a critical piece that comes from financial services, isn't it? The way in which this is typically done is we look at political exposed persons, i.e. are they close to a government? Uh, we look at sanctions. In other words, are they in Iran, Russia or anywhere else that uh, certain governments have deemed as, as being high risk um, and assets have been frozen? And then lastly, uh, when enhanced due diligence or EDD is required for a large transaction amount, say I'm investing a million dollars in a company, then a bank would say, well, can you prove where you got your funds from? The source of funds check, as it's known. And that source of funds check is typically something that is seen as a really useful way of preventing financial crime. Can you prove that you got those uh, those funds from legal means? But actually, the way those are several reports from global regulators and the amount, the size of the fines that the likes of HSBC and others have received for having very poor controls around anti-money laundering have been absolutely massive. They've been in the billions of dollars. Because if you look at some of these reports, I saw one example as, as early as 2011, where a bank um, had had somebody uh, fill in a form saying the source of funds uh, was, I don't know, um, gotten from gambling or, or whatever it was. And then nobody went back and challenged that they just accepted it even though this was a politically exposed person in a sanctioned country and it's like the actually the protections we have in banking today aren't very good the protections we might have from somebody who's providing ether or bitcoin well we've got a track record of where the source of that ether or the source of that bitcoin came from now we might not have the identity but there are ways to find that so it's interesting. Yeah, and that, that is an interesting point. Of, of course, we, we know that these cryptocurrencies can provide the provenance of that coin. But I wonder to what extent we should be held accountable for the whole history of that coin. Not well, just up until... you wouldn't that in banking, would you? you wouldn't. No, not somebody, at all. Somebody walks into a branch with £10,000. They ask you where you got those £10,000, not where the person who gave you those... £10,000 who gave that person who gave it to that person who gave it to that person that goes all the way back to when the notes were printed. So actually this taking responsibility for the entire history of the coin I think is a ridiculous notion because we don't expect that in financial services today. Yes, exactly. Um, and so there was some a couple of other interesting pieces. Um, the BBC had a point where criminals hide 
billions in crypto cash, according to the European police agency Europol. But actually, uh, the amount, they say, is around about two to three billion euros of value. Well, when did they rate. measure that, Simon? Was that before Christmas or after? Well, yeah. It's, it's, what's a Bitcoin worth these days? Um, price is always moving, right? Uh, the guys at CoinFirm cited a, a UN study that suggested of the global economy uh, around about two trillion, uh, an estimated two trillion dollars uh, of money is laundered on an annualized basis. So that makes up between uh, sort of around about 5% of global GDP. Whereas if you assume that the market size of uh, cryptocurrencies or the market cap of cryptocurrencies is around about um, 500 billion euros, give or take uh, here or there because the market be moving, um, then that two to three billion is actually a relatively small percentage compared to five, six percent of global GDP. But I think the real risk is a lot of the cyber crime and cyber activity that uh, nation states are now really worried about some of these emerging threats actually happen and are paid for and bought and paid for with cryptocurrencies so um it's it's just uh it's interesting to see uh the dichotomy between the controls that might be available in crypto the relative size of the problem and why people have different perspectives on it and speaking of different perspectives um on coindesk there's an article about uh, the imf chief the international monetary fund uh so christine lagarde has said global cryptocurrency regulation is inevitable what's happening here I think it ties back to the conversations that we've been seeing uh, last week and certainly around the time of the World Economic Forum. And we heard from last week, as we know, the SEC and the CFTC. And we've just been talking about the France and Germany um, ministries of finance talking about cryptocurrencies being inevitable. I think it's, as you say before, it's to do with the size of the market, really. But I do wonder myself whether it's also something to do with the control over monetary policy that central banks have that cryptocurrencies don't allow them to have if they were to issue a digital currency not a cryptocurrency but a central bank issued digital currency they would be able to well they'd be able to control the monetary supply they'd be able to use their ledger effectively to be able to sort of view some of these uh, transactions and um maintain control over the status quo really and is the would the definition of a currency change if it was issued by a central bank no but it kind of goes back to that need for a taxonomy right because the are they issuing a token are they issuing a digital currency a virtual currency a cryptocurrency um and, and i guess uh central bank issued digital currency that is issued as a token that a, that maybe a distributed ledger uses maybe it doesn't has a set of properties that may be impacted through the law of unintended consequences by any regulation around tokens and crypto assets. I think we need to be very careful when, when we're introducing that. Now, granted, the focus right now, as Lagarde says, is they're actively focusing on anti-money laundering and countering the ter- um, financing of terrorism. But again, as I pointed out in those statistics, compared to the problem in the global economy, it's, it's really a drop in the ocean. Um, and I don't know that policymakers are really looking at the opportunities the technology provides to do it differently. If we ask um, operators of exchanges to basically fill in a form like a bank would, uh, and bearing in mind as well, the banks have largely ignored this space and not offered uh, any any services into it. But if we ask them to do what they did, we're not going to see great results because of that two trillion, we we detect around two percent of that two trillion that's estimated to happen every year, and we prosecute two percent of that two percent. These are um, figures from from the UN and from from Coin Firm. So. Um, anti-money laundering in the banking system is woefully inadequate. Um, the transparency in the banking system is woefully inadequate. The banking system is arguably unfair to smaller investors. And there's an opportunity. And what really interests me is about the past uh, year is that a whole new generation of people have woken up to savings and investments. If we insist on doing things the way we used to do them through anti-money laundering, we potentially... Uh, destroy what could be valuable through the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, for sure. And the, as we've discussed, the original four points from the France and Germany ministers uh, were, were sensible and fair. And uh, anti-money laundering is, again, the regulation it was made for a different time. It was made for a completely different technological paradigm. So although, while it might have seemed sensible at the time, is it really sensible now? And perhaps the framework's right, but the parameters are wrong. 
Indeed. Uh, I think there's a that, that really interesting point you made about source of funds going back to the beginning of a Bitcoin. Why is that expected uh, versus what you'd expect with cash? And I think uh, the, I, I often point out where the risk is greater um, is in the, the existing world of financial services. But where the profile is higher is in this much smaller market where the risk is, is already lower and can be mitigated far more. And we have an opportunity to learn how to do it better in all of financial services, and I think to miss that opportunity would be frustrating. But it seems like JP Morgan might be coming up the knowledge curve a little bit, um, and that's um, with respect to the great work that's happening um, led by Amber Balde's team, but um, maybe not so much to some of JP Morgan's public comments, and especially Jamie Dimon's. A story in Cointelegraph, um, based on a new research report uh, that JP Morgan have put out, the headline is, Crypto is, quote, unlikely to disappear. Um, and this is an internal report attributed to JP Morgan. Um, and, I, and I love this statement. JP Morgan called cryptocurrencies the innovative maelstrom. Yes, it's very much like creative destruction, isn't it? Very dramatic. I like it, if not a little confusing. Indeed. Um, I like this statement as well. Um, that cryptocurrencies may even become a new asset class if they can overcome volatility. Really interesting set of um, pieces here. Yes, and it was, as you mentioned, it was an internal report and it came from their global research team, not their blockchain team. So they have a, they're looking at uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies through a slightly different lens. And they said, made a few other interesting points actually in that report themselves. They said that cryptocurrencies could one day help investors diversify their portfolio if they're a different asset class entirely. Alongside bonds and uh, equities, you could have cryptocurrencies as well or crypto assets. Yeah, and I think that, uh, again, the one of the challenges they know is it's hard for cryptocurrencies to displace and compete with government-issued currencies. And I think this term currency is misleading because actually what we're seeing is this uh, this kind of Cambrian explosion of different species of token type. And we need to understand that innovation and that complexity rather than go, oh, it's a currency, but it's not a currency because it's really volatile. That that surface level discussion was very 2014. I think we need to, to kind of possibly move past that. And it's good to see the beginning of that happening in research departments in, in, in banks. Yeah. And they also actually brought up the point of central bank issued di- digital currency. I know it's a hot topic in the industry these days. So But they, again, had a slightly different uh, frame on that. So they talked about the implications of central bank issued digital currency with the with regards to the somewhat contentious topic of negative interest rates and how to how they would um, central banks obviously would be much easier to implement negative interest rates if they issued their own digital currency had complete control over over that. But there was another point in that report that I found quite interesting. But on the other hand, they say this would allow non-banks to access the central bank's balance sheet, bypassing commercial banks, which could, they say, endanger the economically and socially important financial intermediation function of commercial banks. Which reminds me of um, a bank of the Bank of England put out a working paper, I think, in uh, maybe it was 2016, um, or it might have been 2017, around uh, central bank-issued digital currency that said all of these things, um, that said that we, we risk... Uh, a central bank issued digital currency uh, does not want to bring back narrow banking, which is, as you say, people avoiding commercial banks and fractional reserve and relying on the central bank. But actually, that maybe for some non-bank financial institutions, being able to have access to central banking payment systems is useful, uh, and access to central bank reserve may be useful, but for non-banks. Uh, but it, it's not designed to compete with the liquidity creation, in other words, the printing of money that banks do when they lend. Uh, and, and that's a really interesting working paper that appears to me like the research division has kind of picked up and moved forward. If if you've got the stomach for it, going and reading that central bank issued digital currency paper by the Bank of England research team is is an absolutely phenomenal piece of work. Yeah, it's a good read. It's definitely at 91 pages. It gets to some points where the math goes just way over my head, um, but it was a really good piece of work. Whilst we go through the stories maybe just a change of tack because there have been hacks, hacks and more hacks uh, in the crypto space talking to its relative immaturity. Let's be honest, it's still an adolescent. Um, But 
Binance claim they haven't been hacked. Um, so Cointelegraph has this wonderful headline, Binance versus McAfee, hack rumors controversy. What's going on here, Sarah? So Mr. McAfee tweeted, and uh, part of his tweet was a screenshot saying that claimed that Binance had been hacked, which Binance then refuted. Um, it's, they actually refuted it by moving some funds from their cold storage into their hot storage so that they could prove their funds were there. And actually what it turned out to be, from what I can gather, is it was a server issue, not a security issue. And we we know this so far because no money has moved. Turns out when people get hacked, typically money is stolen rather than it just goes down for a bit. I mean, you do see DDoS attacks, I guess, and maybe they'd be subject to those. But interesting that, um, again, we see that the infrastructure in this market is still immature and that it's more likely to fall over than get hacked. Um, and Lord knows um, Kraken went through a difficult upgrade that, that seems to have gone through that and Binance aren't immune to it. Yeah. Interesting, though, that McAfee, has, the, the saga that is John McAfee's gradual public Public kind of unwinding and unraveling of his psyche um, continues. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It, he, has, um, he has had said some strange things over the years, but it's about eating it, body parts. Yeah, I mean, it's that aside, cannibalism aside, it is actually very irresponsible of him to tweet that. Whether it was fake or not, it was irresponsible to put that up on Twitter. I think, as we've seen from Jamie Dimon's comments, this is any kind of drama is likely to rile the sensibilities of the ecosystem. So saying something like that is, it's bound to have an effect. And this drama moves markets, right? I mean, it's a sentiment-driven market that's full of thinly traded assets where rumours can cause real price moves. And I think we do need to see more responsibility. Speaking of hacks, uh, one of the most popular hardware wallets, the Ledger Nano S, is vulnerable to cyber attacks. Um, According to Hardread, all Ledger hardware wallets are vulnerable to a man-in-the-middle attack, which is a specific type of attack. So, of course, Ledger hardware wallets being cold storage, as you were mentioning earlier, that Binance have cold storage. URI could have this mini USB key, store our Bitcoins offline, and in theory, it's far, far more secure than storing them in an exchange or uh, leaving them on a laptop. Uh, so what's uh, what's the summary here from hackery.com? Yeah, so we have this vulnerability that was identified by as-yet-unknown security researchers, and every single hardware wallet that allows cybercriminals to show fraudulent addresses to the users and customers. So, in other words, the man-in-the-middle attack when somebody wants to transfer something to their hardware wallet, any laptop that's infected with the malware can actually show them a fake address. Mm -hmm. So rather than going to the hardware wallet, it goes to um, someone else's wallet. I'd imagine a criminal. Uh, This is interesting because Nano S in itself, I think uh, it's all reported has sold over one million uh, devices and it's cold storage, whether we're talking Nano S or more generally cold storage, is widely considered to be a much more secure place to hold cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. So it's it's worrying that this is the case. Uh, I think linking back to our last story, I think the way that the security researchers went about it by contacting the CEO and the CTO of... of, um, Ledger Nano, rather than tweeting about it, is a much more responsible way to go about it. But it does speak to, uh, as you mentioned before, the immaturity in the infrastructure around this. And also, it's a it's a reminder for all of us, actually, that there's no silver bullet and we need to consistently do our due diligence on this. Absolutely. I, I think uh, it, it mentions that uh, wallet uses JavaScript code running directly on your laptop. So if you are, as you say, infected with that malware, um, all it needs is replacing the code that generates that receiving address. I think um, the as you say, the approach was was uh, really good. Uh, also, the um, the guys at Ledger did put out a uh, a tweet about how you mitigate the man in the middle attack um, and uh, sort of uh, a whole bunch of ways around that issue. Whilst they set about fixing that for all of the people that have the Ledger Nano, so um, an example of a bit of maturity at long last, it seems. Um, but speaking of maybe flipping that upside down, um, some Russian uh, folks uh, have been arrested for mining Bitcoin at a nuclear facility. This headline has everything. Thank you to The Guardian for that story. So what's the summary here, Sarah? 
Well, that's that's roughly it. <laughs> Russians, Russian nuclear workers have been arrested for mining Bitcoin. So what they were arrested for is an attempt to use the work computing facilities for personal ends, including so-called mining, which is interestingly an arrestable offence in Russia, it would seem, and not just a sackable offence. Yeah, um, I guess the um, the I love this this sentence. Um, the bungling miners have been detained by the competent authorities. As far as I know, a criminal case has been opened regarding them. I think this is the um, spokesperson that comes out from the uh, Russian um, news agency. Setting the agenda there, isn't it? Uh, oh, well and true. Bungling truly. miners. Uh, little, little bit of um, opinion coming with those uh, quote-unquote facts. Yeah, and I think uh, Russia's finance ministry are certainly looking at regulating cryptocurrency transactions on exchanges, um, not coming out right banning this so to arrest some um, some factory workers effectively seems perhaps heavy-handed and also you've got to think that uh, there are probably other people using cryptocurrencies other than bitcoin to evade tax there are people in um, said regions that may or may not have access to cheap electricity uh, may or may not have access to the energy industry and be able to make significant profits mining bitcoin this is this is interesting who who they made the public example of and who they haven't. Um, but we'll, we'll continue to watch that one for sure. Um, but then uh, uh, on the maturity curve, somewhere left in the middle of the, uh, the old Winklevoss twins, they say Bitcoin can go bigger. Um, Cointelegraph uh, reports a headline where the uh, Winklevoss twins say the Bitcoin has the potential to grow at least 30-fold in 10 to 20 years. Um, more of this. Uh, Colin always talks about Bitcoin being a religion. Are these guys the some some true believers, some disciples? I well, I don't know much about their religious opinions, but yeah. they, I do know they are long on Bitcoin. So yeah, they would say that it would appreciate appreciate a great deal. But actually, they're not the only ones, and there are several experts who may or may not be long on Bitcoin, saying that it could predicting that it could reach fifty k before the end of twenty eighteen. That's US dollars. Um, they they're an interesting interesting duo, aren't they? So most most recently famous for Gemini, the exchange which was uh, used exchange predominantly exchange under CC desk and um, crypto custodians. Well. Yeah, and used by the CBOE futures, mm. yeah. which is fairly credible. Um, and they've had a few goes before at setting up things like the ETF and um, a payment processor, which is. Uh, to my mind, quite good investment actually in the infrastructure, more the the, um, the payment rails rather than an yeah. exchange. But they've they've been around for a while in the crypto space, and it's generally interesting that Gemini, the organisation, is perceived as reasonably um, kind of credible, um, and yet kind of the headline level, the the Winklevoss twins are very attention grabbing and very um, bullish in terms of price. I'd prefer that the key industry actors in this space didn't come out and be wild bullish about price but actually talked in more sober tones about yes there is massive potential for a new asset class as even jp morgan have now said in in an internal research report we could actually build a coalescence around the idea that there is an emerging asset class here and i think it was uh, chris Baniski's crypto asset books that first really talked about that and that as a as a new type of asset class is really really exciting and what that means for engaging a new generation of investors is really really exciting but these wild speculative price um, predictions I don't think help anybody. No, it is just absolutely speculation. There's nothing to do with investment there. But you mentioned a moment ago payments being interesting. Uh, there's a story coming from Nasdaq.com. Um, will LITE LightPay be the game changer that takes cryptocurrency mainstream? So what's LightPay, Sarah? So LightPay is a way to bridge the gap between merchants and crypto, apparently. It's good because it's a step towards the utilisation of cryptocurrency rather than just price speculation, as we were just talking about there. And I think they are going to later in the year launch LightPal, which I presume is inspired by PayPal. Love that. There's yeah. a bit of copycat branding. Yeah. Um, local supermarkets everywhere would be proud. <laughs> exactly. So Litecoin, as we know, it's, it's uh, forked from Bitcoin Core. Uh, it has some slightly different, it's differing slightly on the protocol level. So it's a way that merchants can accept payments in Litecoin at the point of sale. And also, it they are going to um, dole out cards. They're going to dole out debit cards uh, that one can use to pay in from their Litecoin wallet. Now, I don't see these things as being entirely joined up from what I can gather yet. So... Yeah. 
at the point of sale, the customer will choose to pay in Litecoin and then you invoice them at a locked in price. And then the Litecoin gets transferred into your fiat currency of your choice and paid directly into your bank account. Yeah, so this is a bit like how BitPay works. So you, uh, the merchant acquires Litecoin, but is immediately given by the operator, in this case, um, Litecoin, I guess, or some, some foundation be- behind it, um, that it's settled in fiat. Yeah. So, and it, it, this kind of reminds me as to some of the second layer scaling solutions we've seen around uh, the Lightning Network from from Bitcoin. But this is actually a brand for merchants to be able to buy in, and a business that allows those merchants to acquire those payments. And talks about um, kind of the transaction fee of one percent versus three percent from credit cards. Now, this is a bit of an issue in the U.S., but in Europe and most of the rest of the world, interchange fees are capped. Like credit card fees are are actually ten percent of that, if if not sometimes less. Uh, so it's uh, it's quite different. Yeah, it is good. Uh, I think the reason why I'm positive on this one is, and the reason why I think it's been called bridging the gap between merchants and crypto is because when if we look at today the merchants that accept Bitcoin and Litecoin as a payment, if you were to make a payment to that merchant, you'd have to stand there and wait what ten minutes, an hour, mm-hmm. who knows how long uh, from time to time for that payment to actually settle. By which time the prices could have fluctuated wildly for good or for bad. Yeah, and this is quite similar to what we see. um, Again, if I was to take the metaphor of Visa and MasterCard, when I walk into a shop, they don't get my money immediately. What they get is a view from my bank if I have enough money. We call that the authorization. So the, the bank knows I'm good for the money. The merchant knows I'm good for the money. And then sometimes overnight, sometimes over two or three days, the money actually moves. Well, why wouldn't that work for Litecoin? Well, turns out it would. Uh, so I'm really interested to know more about the technology. This article from NASDAQ doesn't go into the technologies that are used because uh, obviously with second layer scaling solutions, there's always that question of, uh, yes, it's a second layer, but if it's decentralized, you have the same issue of the first layer, which is ultimately as it grows, people are going, it, it's going to get slower and it's going to get more expensive because of the cost of decentralization, is this reintroducing centralization in some way to create efficiency? And should we reintroduce centralization to create efficiency? Well, they did say they had a number of exchanges they're working with, but it's all in private beat until the end of Feb. So watch this space. I'm sure we'll come Uh, back to it. Absolutely. All right. um, Next story. Venezuela to officially propose a crypto-backed Petro uh, coin to OPEC and OPEC, of course, being the uh, kind of grouping of international oil producers. Um, and so this story comes from Trust Nodes. And uh, Sarah, what's going on here? So Venezuela have allocated five billion oil bar- barrels to back Petro, which is their crypto token, which will be tied to the price of a barrel of Venezuelan oil, effectively. The Petro token will be created an initial coin offering. Uh, which hopes to raise five billion US dollars, and half of that is going to the state fund. So yeah, it's I, I had a read of the uh, white paper actually earlier, if you can call of, call it that, because um, it's not very deep on the technical details. But interesting. <laughs> well, which white paper for an ICO is the? Yeah, really? true. Which puts it about par with the rest of the ICO industry. But it's got an interesting graphic on the front, which kind of looks a little bit like money growing on trees. Um, but anyway, graphics aside, they it, it seems a little bit complex to me. So they plan to issue 100 million of these Petro tokens. No more will be issued without the vote of the Petro owners, by the way. So they can issue more, but obviously yeah. they have to reach a quorum. There's an ERC-20 pre-sale, which they say will promote and encourage adoption. And then you can transfer whatever you get from the pre-sale into Petro later when they do the initial offering. And that will last until the 82.4 million of the initially pre-mined 100 million are exhausted. So 17.6 mil will be of these tokens will be retained by the Venezuelan Superintendency of Currency and Related Activities, <laughs> which they will be using i presume to promote these uh, promote the token around the world develop other asset backed cryptos henceforth known as the department of dodgy dealings <laughs> and it's 55% of that that will be kept by the sovereign fund so the 55% of the 17.6 billion of the uh, 100 million of the petro tokens which are transferred from the erc20 tokens still with me 
No, you've completely lost me, as have most token sales. So Yeah, like, it, well, this is true. I, I can't be particularly down on this one when it's pretty much par for the course, isn't um, it? But the, the scale of this thing is, is audacious. Um, Five billion US dollars worth of tokens they're looking to raise. And let's not forget, Venezuela is a country subject to sanctions. Um, it is struggling to sell its oil because oil is linked to the US dollar. So let's create a new token with which people can buy our Oil. Which they reference throughout the paper in US dollar. Yeah, <laughs> not, a, not even a hint of irony to that. Um, so I can see the geopolitics of this starting to play out a little bit. There are nation states, uh, and Venezuela are probably the first, but there are others, who look at um, either tokens or um, t- token-backed um, securities of some sort as being a new way in which they could gain geopolitical advantage. And it's going to be interesting to see if this gains any traction whatsoever. or if uh, and, and, and it's things like this that make you go, oh, maybe that's why the G20 are responding. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot more at play here than just this tiny market. It's the state-sponsored level geopolitics that we need to keep in mind. All right, but if we are concerned about the dark web, don't worry about it. Bitcoin is no longer the most popular kid on the dark web. According to Fortune.com, Litecoin is now a surprise favorite of criminals tired of Bitcoin. Litecoin? I'd have thought it had been Monero or something. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by this as well. Uh, Monero or Dash would have been my my picks. But apparently, actually, the English-speaking world do still favor Monero and Dash. It's the Russian-speaking world who favor Litecoin. And this is potentially to do with um, the accessibility of Litecoin being listed on Coinbase, being supported by the Ledger Nano S, as we've we've talked about before. Yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm still surprised by Litecoin. I mean, we know from companies like Chain Analysis that, or Chain Analysis, sorry, mm-hmm. you can trace, you can use network analysis to trace uh, who and where some of these individuals are. But apparently, the Russian-speaking world are less concerned with the authorities and more concerned with their uh, their funds being hacked, basically. It's an interesting different set of perspectives what drives that. And it's an interesting uh, kind of set of perspectives as to where the activity is. It's almost like an index on where is the the negative activity happening in dark markets, uh, who's buying and who's selling. Um, And Elliptic did a great report recently where they reckon uh, about 1% of activity happening in all crypto assets is illicit activity. But then they break down that 1% and say, of this, how much is dark markets? Well, around 97% of it is dark markets. Um, So... Uh, a high percentage of a very low percentage, but still a significant set. Um, so interesting to watch, and who knew? And according to this as well, um, Dash um, has uh, it was number two um, overall. Bitcoin Cash uh, was number three overall um, outside of the English-speaking world. So Dash, I can understand, although uh, companies like CoinFirm are now able to do network analysis and other such techniques to identify uh, source of funds and, and uh, follow the money, as you said earlier. Uh, I think there is an interesting point, and it ties back to our conversation earlier about um, about the extent to which AML should trace the coin's history. So companies like Dash and Monero do use mixing service, which does effectively decouple the coin from its history. Mm. And not, I'm not saying money laundering and using cryptocurrencies or anything for illicit purposes is good. However, there is a privacy element that comes into being able to trace the full provenance of oh, these kind of coins. Imagine if I could see every transaction you'd ever done. I could build up a pretty comprehensive picture of your entire life. The reason that these digital currencies were anonymized wasn't purely because, uh, well, I mean, there was some attempt to say the existing financial system is rubbish and we need to have you know, uh, true autonomy as individuals. But it wasn't to promote crime. People identified that they could use it for crime but actually, I, I believe anyway, and, I, and other people may disagree with me, that the the core concept of we have to strip identities off because you've got this perfect record of every transaction ever. And now the privacy coins are again a, a step at trying to further that privacy of somebody. Because if you create this perfect record, then you can start to really identify money laundering, terrorist financing and other things. But you can also invade people's privacy. Yeah, I can't is- be held accountable for what the history of the coin is just as much as jewellery can't be held accountable for being used in transferring large amounts of money across borders 
murderers or knives held accountable for killing people. Uh-huh. It's the actual crime that's the crime, not the the medium of criminal activity. But it's super interesting to me that uh, our perspective on that hasn't shifted from a policymaker level, and maybe it's time to. All right, so we are running out of time, Sarah. So there's just a, a there's three stories this week that we haven't had time to cover. Uh, Ripple did a thing. No surprises here. Um, story on a Business Insider. Ripple. Which this is an interesting headline. Ripple, the company behind XRP, signs an international payment deal with foreign exchange giant UAE Exchange. Interesting that they put XRP in the headline, suggesting that putting XRP in the headline gets hits, but also that Ripple wanted people to talk up XRP. And that then, um, did you see this thing where the UAE exchange came out and said, oh yeah, but we're not using XRP? Like nobody is using XRP, so no big surprises there. Nobody's using XRP, and yet for some reason they seem really keen to promote the XRPs in the headlines everywhere. Odd that, isn't it? Uh, Story on Coindesk, Into the Dark Pool, uh, which sounds like a book title. Um, $30 million ICO could pave a way for huge crypto trades. Um, Colin um, and I talked about this a little bit, and he was saying that the uh, the people behind this don't seem to understand trading and don't seem to understand dark pools, um, which uh, we'll try and get more and, uh, more from him next week when he's back from his Alp or hanging out with uh, strange animals and skiing and whatever it is he does in his spare time being generally GSAS. Um, and then the last story on Coindesk, uh, CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, who, of course, offer Bitcoin futures, I believe, or is it options? I always get them and Sibo. Yeah, it's futures, isn't it? Um, they've patented a system for seamless blockchain rule changes. Ooh, governance be a problem. De- governance definitely be a problem. Interesting one to watch. Alrighty, uh, don't forget you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered by getting in touch on Twitter at Bchain Insider. That's the letter B Chain Insider, or get in touch with me at Sy Taylor if you want to pick up with anything with us personally. You can also head over to our news forum fintechinsidernews.com to learn more about the stories, or just drop us an email podcasts at elevenfs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Alrighty, next up we have an interview with the one and only Blythe Masters. We are here, and I have the good fortune of being joined by the one and only Blythe Masters. Blythe, how the heck are you? I am very well, thank you. It's uh, good to be joining you. It's it's good to have you uh, on Blockchain Insider, uh, but it's been probably a busy 12 months for you. But before we get into that busy 12 months, uh, remind some of our listeners who, who might not have come across you before a little bit about your background, who you are and what you've done, because I think it's a tremendously interesting story. Uh, Thank you. Happy to do that. Currently the CEO of a company that is New York-based called Digital Asset. And we are a a software engineering uh, firm uh, that produces uh, DLT-based technology, distributed ledger technology uh, for wholesale uh, financial services that include market infrastructures and and their financial institutions' uh, customers. And prior to that, I spent, well, frankly, the better part of three decades, so more than 27 years uh, working uh, for J.P. Morgan Chase uh, in a variety of different capacities. Uh, most of that time in New York, I did a number of roles, including uh, I was the CFO of the uh, Global Investment Bank. I ran credit policy and strategy. I looked after the investment bank's uh, regulatory affairs during the reform process that followed in the aftermath of the uh, global financial crisis. I also uh, ran the global commodities business and a number of other markets businesses over over the years. It's a, it's a heck of a move. And I want to talk about kind of blockchain and DLT and enterprise, because I think 2017 was arguably the year of kind of the permissionless blockchain world. We're, we're now, I think, potentially seeing return of the enterprise or the enterprise strikes back. Uh, so there's definitely, I think, a view that was held that enterprise DLT had gone away. Maybe it hadn't delivered. Uh, but some of us thought, well, actually, no, maybe it's, it's time to uh, get things delivered and get things done. So where are we at? with the development of enterprise DLT? And I know you guys had some recent headlines coming out of Australia, for instance. So when I first came across the concepts of blockchain and began to imagine uh, with the help of those that were were helping me learn all of this, uh, the potential applications to enterprise uh, technology and highly regulated market environments, whilst on the one hand, it was very obvious that uh, the original Bitcoin blockchain invention was an extraordinary act of innovation and genius. 
It was also very clear that many of the attributes of the original configuration or the original conceptualization as a, a database construct that uh, facilitated the creation of cryptocurrencies really needed to be modified uh, very materially in order for it to become suitable or even apl- applicable or even legal uh, or regulatorily uh, compliant in the context of regulated financial services. What made me take the jump was the belief that the need and the potential were both there uh, and that with time and research and development, those changes could be achieved and arrived at. And in fact, that is what has been going on since the, you know, let's call it roughly sometime around 2014 or 15, that the the noise around the enterprise space uh, initially began to build up steam, uh, some might even say uh, develop a head of hype. Um, what's been going on since then is a significant amount of work, uh, some of which has been conducted in the open source community, some of which has been conducted by individual institutions, both vendors and their customers. And all of it has been oriented around addressing the fact that the use cases uh, in enterprise and highly regulated uh, financial markets required the original design uh, concepts to be uh, modified quite significantly. You asked about the news uh, relating to ASX's activities, uh, which was uh, publicized at the end of last year, early in December. ASX represents a market infrastructure that operates the national market uh, framework for uh, Australia. Uh, In Australia, uh, ASX is responsible currently for all of clearing uh, and settlement uh, and the update of the CSD, the Central Securities Depository there. And the technology that they have uh, used traditionally um, for uh, undertaking that is uh, aging. Uh, It's not in crisis, uh, uh, but it nonetheless needed to be uh, replaced. And at the time at which ASX uh, first started thinking about that, the DLT for enterprise concept uh, was being floated, um, but it was very clear to them and others that it was not yet ready for actual adoption. So rather than uh, proceed with replacing their technology with um, just a newer version of the traditional approach, they instead uh, held off for a while, undertook a multi-year process involving a partnership uh, with us to really kick the tires of uh, the DLT concept in the context of actually using it to run a highly uh, sensitive market infrastructure uh, that's highly regulated, uh, that has to deal with very significant volumes and all sorts of uh, concerns um, and you know, very low degree of risk tolerance uh, for any kind of disruption or instability or insecurity in, uh, in the technology. And that project took uh, uh, two years, and obviously the result which was announced uh, was that uh, ASX have decided to replace uh, Chess, their current infrastructure, uh, with a distributed ledger-based technology provided by Digital Asset, which obviously is not a decision that they took lightly. It involved deep understanding of the architecture, independent auditing um, of the security features of the design functional analysis to ensure that the functionality of of a complex market environment could be addressed, and then non-functional testing to ensure uh, that once the functionality was uh, delivered, it could operate uh, with the kind of enterprise uh, standards that would be appropriate for uh, that market environment, which is obviously an enormous validation for anyone in the industry um, that that, that those questions can be asked and answered by such a demanding customer. I think it's important that those questions have been asked and answered through a long process of due diligence when we're in an industry where I think, the, as you pointed out, the hype around the entire subject of blockchain and DLT uh, in 2014-15 was pretty high. People did question whether or not they could deliver, and now you're getting significant market infrastructure players saying, no, actually, we believe this can deliver for us, having spent a long time looking at it with all of the due diligence we could possibly wish to throw at this thing. So it's a it's it's huge to see this starting to become real in, in 2018. 
So uh, let's let's take a step back from uh, kind of some of the DLT stuff and, and go to the broader market context, because I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of financial market infrastructure and market structure generally. Uh, when they're investing in their pensions or savings investments generally, or in the US, their 401k, they don't see all of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and uh, where some of the cost and friction is. Could you, as an industry veteran who's, who's kind of seen it all before, talk us through some of the challenges uh, that are in that industry and what that means for somebody who is holding a pension or somebody that does have an investment somewhere? What, what does that mean in terms of, I don't know, cost or a lack of transparency or, or some other things? Yeah, happy to. Um, and your point is well taken. Um, it is absolutely the case that, that most post-trade activity is largely uh, completely not transparent to the individual consumer uh, of financial services. So the end investor uh, or retail individual uh, in particular wouldn't inherently uh, be exposed to a lot of the uh, challenges that I'm about to describe in a, in a first-hand sense. But there are implications for those participants uh, in terms ultimately of speed, uh, efficiency, uh, cost, uh, and risk. And uh, the best way to describe this is to take a simple example uh, of a market structure that's well understood uh, by by pretty much everybody. Uh, so let's take uh, cash equities uh, as an example. And so when two parties meet uh, in an equity market, it's usually an organized exchange venue, although there are also over-the-counter transactions. And uh, say you and I were looking to exchange a unit of stock uh, and, you know, it, on the one hand, it's a simple process. The uh, equities are simple instruments. Uh, they're well understood. Um, they don't have the complexities of uh, fixed income instruments or, or derivatives. But on the other hand, the process that is needed to complete the legal final arrangements, uh, such that the trade that is agreed to when an order gets filled, uh, is, uh, is incredibly complex and it involves uh, multiple parties. So if you or I go to the stock market to trade, uh, we typically would each have uh, a, uh, an executing broker. Uh, that might be a small uh, organization, and it, it may well have its activities aggregated under the umbrella of a larger uh, organization. Uh, that, met, that entity uh, or another on each side may act as the clearing member for the relevant uh, clearing house, uh, which is used to act as a principal uh, to intermediate our transactions such that when uh, we meet in the marketplace, even though it might be that I stole my stock to you, the way that the uh, transaction is effectuated is that the clearinghouse acts as a principal intermediary between the two of us. And so our transaction needs to be novated to that entity rather than us facing each other uh, directly. So there's a clearinghouse that's involved as well as a clearing member that facilitates access to that uh, clearinghouse. Um, there are settlement agents, uh, which essentially facilitate the connection of the securities transfers with uh, the cash that needs to change hands um, that's initially held in uh, bank accounts, either individually or in aggregate at brokers' uh, positions held uh, with the Fed wire. Uh, and then there are the custodians who, on behalf of each side of the trade, uh, are responsible for not the ownership of uh, the securities positions, but the control thereof and take the fiduciary responsibility for ensuring um, that customers' interests uh, are preserved during this process. And then finally, there's a thing called the CSD, the Central Securities Depository, which is ultimately the place where the record uh, or ledger, if you will, of everybody's um, positions uh, is kept updated. I've lost track of how many distinct ent entities um, and areas of responsibilities that I've just rattled off, but it's, a sh it's not a short list. And every one of those entities, essentially today, uh, using traditional uh, technology, maintains its own independent record or ledger, if you will, which it uses to keep track of uh, and ensure the ver validity or uh, veracity uh, of transactions that are executed in which they have an interest either as a principal or a fiduciary or both. And uh, when you're operating with many different and interested parties who are maintaining their own record of transactional information, account data, um, market uh, and security information, the capacity for disagreement and error uh, is gigantic. 
Uh, and that in turn leads to uh, a need for uh, reconciliation uh, between the parties uh, that can be completely avoided if only you could instead get comfortable with the security characteristics of a database construct uh, where all those interested parties could both maintain uh, privacy and security, but work on updating and validating the same record, the same transactional record, instead of all their separate records, and then having to reconcile the differences. That's phenomenal, isn't it, that uh, we, we, we find ourselves in a position where there are CSDs, custodians, countless actors for simply buying shares. All the individual wants to do is buy shares, and they find themselves in a position where they're not aware of this complexity behind the scenes, because all of these organizations have to keep all of their records up to date, and they're all doing it individually, and there hadn't been an elegant solution for that, other than trying to centralize things, but we'd always centralize a bit of the process, in so doing, creating another record, which meant we needed to reconcile all of that all over again uh, and it's good that, that now we're seeing uh, a way that that's starting to come to an end so what does this all move to Blythe um, because I think there's there's definitely a, a, the likes of the ASX where you've got a nice concentrated market in which people can really take advantage of the technology quite easily uh, around one actor like the ASX and uh, a small number of institutions but do not are we going to see that this is something that people can adopt quickly? Can people upgrade? Can market participants upgrade their infrastructure to take advantage of DLT? How, how do you see it sort of playing out? Is it going to be that we uh, have suppliers that supply you know a kind of a network capability, or that uh, it be the existing FMIs themselves that will upgrade, or maybe a mixture of those two? Um, I, I think the revolution that's going on here is, uh, in many respects, similar to the revolution that um, was triggered by the in invention and the popularization of the internet. The only difference here is that what the internet really started off being about was uh, the transmission of information. And what we're uh, talking about here is uh, the transfer of value and actually associated automated workflow processing around, around that. If you think about what happened and is continuing in the case of uh, the internet revolution is that uh, the ability to transmit and share and communicate data, whether it be in the form of email uh, or uh, website content or otherwise, completely changed uh, the way that the whole world uh, operates. And in the context of that, you saw some businesses which were just profoundly disrupted and uh, change forever. So think about the advertising industry, the media industry, the uh, entertainment uh, uh, and music industry, things like, you know, Blockbuster that, you know, went the way of, of, of Netflix, uh, you know, at the mercy of streaming as, as, as bandwidth uh, broadened out. And you saw, of course, uh, some entirely new businesses uh, that were fueled by technology uh, and by the network effect that the internet uh, created, the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks of this world. But you also saw that almost every uh, bricks and mortar organization, you know, from banking to healthcare to uh, education, adopted and adapted uh, to using the internet in order to enhance their business processes and their customer experience. And you are going to see a lot of that same uh, pattern repeat itself here, where the incumbents are incentivized because they work in highly competitive markets in an environment where their customers are highly demanding of improved processing speeds, reduced cost, uh, less capital requirements, and so on, that they, they are incentivized to uh, provide their customers with uh, better service and to use technology uh, to do that. What they also have as incumbents is significant existing uh, connectivity to a very broad network uh, of customers. In fact, they join uh, the dots in the financial ecosystem, uh, particularly market infrastructure providers uh, who are connected to both the buy side and the sell side and the custodians and so on and so forth. And they have, therefore, an inherent advantage if they uh, move sufficiently uh, quickly to uh, adopt and adapt to this technology because uh, they're already positioned uh, with the existing relationships, the existing revenues, the existing knowledge uh, of uh, the existing um, uh, processes and holdings. And they're also subject to uh, an extraordinary burden of regulation, uh, which it would not be in anybody's best interest to simply abandon overnight. And so knowing why we have regulation, uh, why it matters, 
who it protects and what it needs uh, to achieve is something that's uh, important. And it also, I think, leads to a recognition that there are few, if any, regulators around the world who are responsible for the systemic stability of their national markets, whether that be monetary policy or securities markets or payment systems or all of the above. There are very few that um, are willing to, at this stage, uh, simply acknowledge the uh, dismantling and complete decentralization uh, of infrastructure without retaining the notion of competent uh, authorities that are subject to their regulation. And that is something I think is often uh, lost in the noise as people imagine that, you know, all custodians, uh, all registrar businesses or all banks will suddenly no longer exist because everyone is going to be dealing peer to peer in a, a completely decentralized market. I think that is not where we are yet ready to go. And a transition from here to there will have to come much more incrementally. This is something when I worked at a bank I used to call trying to find the Goldilocks level of difficulty for a problem. So what what problem can you get your arms around where it's big enough that you can solve it and make a material difference, but small enough that you're not trying to boil the ocean with a candle. You're trying to find that balance constantly. And I think uh, the example you gave of the internet is an interesting one to me because we saw the internet has started to change how video has happened through the internet. Uh, We're now kind of in in 2018 where video through the internet is realistic in 1996 video through the internet was not realistic so over a long enough time horizon things could become true but when you're dealing with systemically important things like all of the money in an inside of a country i think we people will be rightly quite concerned about how well that's managed and what controls uh, are put around that as appropriate and so that, that kind of leads me to 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 my last question before before we call this interview to a close which is do you think that broadly some of the speculation around cryptocurrencies have been a bit of a distraction and uh do you think that we'll move into 2018 thinking less about prices of cryptocurrencies and a lot more about promise of of blockchain you know i i think it's this is not an either or type of situation i think that there's no doubt that in uh the early stages of the development of blockchain the close connection between cryptocurrencies and blockchain Um, served as a distraction uh, because the noise around the inappropriate and in many cases illegal activity that was being undertaken using cryptocurrencies that circumnavigated or circumvented, I should say, uh, regulatory requirements meant that uh, the promise of the technology was much less well advertised and perhaps held back as a consequence. Since then, I think the the ability to distinguish between cryptocurrencies and technologies that can be used for cryptocurrencies and other things has become much better understood. Also, uh, many of the features of the configurations of blockchains that are used for public uh, cryptocurrencies um, have been modified for use uh, by enterprise, and that's now more well understood. And I think some of the most egregious excesses that were being undertaken in the cryptocurrency space have been reined in uh, to a degree as uh, governments and regulators have recognized the need to, for example, regulate certain areas of activity, identify areas of blatant arbitrage, uh, such as the avoidance of payments uh, regulation uh, or uh, or money uh, transmitter uh, regulation and the avoidance of securities issuance laws, uh, for example, as has been, you know, the more the more recent um, uh, issue uh, that has plagued ICO issuance, uh, where many ICO issuances really can't be distinguished from uh, what should be and actually, you know, looks like in many cases will be regulated as uh, securities issuances, which have not been compliant with uh, securities regulation. So, you know, as 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 understanding um, has evolved, and the uh, cryptocurrency space has proliferated, and and obviously also seen some extraordinary uh, price action, uh, both in terms of absolute uh, price appreciation and extraordinary volatility, that has attracted a lot of interest, both uh, in terms of market participants and uh, commentators uh, and regulators. And I think generally it's meant that to be unaware of or or uninvolved in uh, or unable to explain these phenomena uh, is is now no longer really ex- acceptable. And in that sense, it is, if, if anything, been somewhat helpful. I do think 
that there uh, is reason to believe that the valuation uh, of cryptocurrencies and some uh, of the volatility that is associated with those, and indeed, you know, the construction of some uh, ICOs, many of which are believed to be uh, fraudulent um, or at least run afoul of, of regulation, is going to cause damage, and uh, and there will be uh, accidents. Uh, but I don't think that ultimately uh, that will undermine or destroy uh, the case for carefully implemented technology deployed uh, in the numerous instances where that technology is solving real-world problems, uh, whether it's making payments easier or cheaper or quicker or uh, effectuating settlement or corporate actions uh, or other post-trade lifecycle events more quickly. All of, the, all of those things ultimately are really valuable, and uh, most of them uh, are being built on technology that is completely separate from or uh, immune to uh, fluctuations in uh, cryptocurrency uh, valuation. Uh, and so if there were to be accidents in the cryptocurrency space, um, that wouldn't undermine uh, or devalue uh, the case for building market infrastructure and uh, trade processing tools using, uh, using this technology. I think that's hugely interesting that we see the potential for awareness drawing people to the uh, possibility of good value here in, in the future of a technology. Uh, and, and indeed, to say that not all of the permissionless space is bad, that to say that people have figured out how you might use some of the permissionless tech in, in the blockchain space, I find uh, hugely uh, insightful and something that possibly not a lot of people had realized. I think uh, beneath the meme of we love the technology but not the currency, there's a lot more new nuance that that often gets lost um, but Blythe uh, I'm afraid to say we're up against it on time so I'm gonna have to ask uh, just where people can find out more about you and more about digital asset because uh, I, I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed this interview uh, thank you uh, likewise I've enjoyed it and if uh, you want to read more you can find us at uh, digitalasset.com brilliant Blythe thank you so much for your time thank you A big thank you to Blind Masters and, of course, my co-host for today, Sarah Feenan. Sarah, thank you for being on the show. Where can people find out more about you and what it is you do? You can tweet me at Seronimo or at Clearmatics or head to our website, clearmatics.com. Thank you, Sarah. Um, big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer. Shout out, Laura. Um, to Michael Bailey, our editor and assistant producer, Petrit, who is still recovering from operation, but still helped us out with show notes. So well done. If you can do that, recovering from an operation, you are a superstar and we appreciate that. As a reminder, uh, the company that brings you this podcast, 11FS, we're a challenger agency. We help banks, asset managers, FMIs, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to get stuff done. Uh, if you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we really hope you'll get in touch. You can find out more at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, if you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. I've seen a couple of really great five-star reviews this week and appreciate those. They help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell anybody interested in the subject and tell colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>